Welcome. This is an interview I conducted with Adam Jogan Salzberg. Jogan is a Zen priest and teacher in the Soto Zen lineage. He spent, I think, over 15 years in committed residential practice at a Zen Buddhist monastery. Um, and he seems just like a lifelong commitment to transformation and to helping others in their transformation. Uh, this is a conversation we had in October. I reached out to Jogan to help, help me out with a film project I was working on where I was going to film a month-long surf meditation retreat, which I ended up doing back in October. In this conversation, we touch on some really, I think, kind of beautiful and important topics. And Jogan, it seems, really stressed the importance of being able to connect to our essence, our awareness, and from that spacious awareness, being able to allow all of the experiences of life to move through us. Yeah, so please enjoy this interview. I'm still definitely trying to get the hang of interviewing folks and uh, <laughs> had a minor meltdown the other day when I was editing the interview, listening to all the yas that I throw in there. I actually edited a lot of them out for this podcast, but man, it sure hurt to hear my own growing edges. So when I thought I'd make a podcast, I didn't realize that it would flare up my self-consciousness so strongly. So it's definitely been a, a new practice of mine to listen to myself talk and feel the judgment I have towards myself and try to relax around that. And, you know, eventually I kind of was able to hear some of the beauty that came through in this podcast. And I hope you're able to find that too. Yeah, so thanks for listening. Here's Jogan. All right, so we're recording now. <laughs> All right, great. Yeah, man, welcome. Um, you know, I just did a little intro for you, kind of my, my crossing paths with you over the years, which uh -huh. is only, it's been infrequent, you know, but yeah. I think I did a first retreat at Dharma or um, with ZCO. It was a Rohatsu when they mixed with Dharma Rain. Do you remember that one? Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, I think, was that like one of your first times teaching, like formally in a... It, I felt like you were newer, sort of. I heard you ask a question to a teacher, sort of like, what do I do with being a teacher now? Oh, so I don't remember when that was. but Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. yeah. I might have better yeah. memory of it than you do. <laughs> we started teaching with them, and I mean, we've done retreats with them as, since, you know, early 2000s, so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was when they were switching out their buildings and kind of oh, okay. the space. Yeah. 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 How, how long have you been a priest for now? I ordained in 2006. 2006. Were you a resident before that for a bit? I was. I started residency when, in 2003. Okay. Yeah. And have you been at it the whole time? Well, I am now living in Portland and have been for about a year. Yeah. Are you, are you doing part-time, I think is what I heard you mention? I was doing part-time and now I'm full-time in the, in the city. 
Okay, so you're uh, out of the monastery. Yeah, I am still a ZCO teacher and still ordained, but I'm not a monastic anymore. How is that transition? Well, <laughs> I mean, it, to, to, what led up to the transition was going through a lot of discernment and midlife crisis, and yeah, uh, there's that's a whole that's a whole podcast. Um, but <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, I am curious about this because, like, part of the thing I'm. Uh, interested in is uh, how to hold the, the the sort of they seem like different places almost like a monastic setting or a retreat setting yeah. and kind of our everyday life you know and yeah. that sort of balance of holding those the sort of yeah. contemplative heart and how it might look different in everyday life than at a monastery yeah. or like uh, I was just kind of curious if you you know you're kind of maybe in that a little bit of yeah so the question is what what's different or how is it for me yeah how has it been for you and what have you noticed sort of in the transition like what surprised you or what's sort of uh caught you if that is enough of a frame of a question yeah well what surprised me was how much fun i had <laughs> coming back into the city yeah <laughs> uh, before covid when portland was just popping like it normally does i was involved in a lot of things you know i was making a movie with my theater teacher i was doing this practice on the side with him i was getting involved with dance i was starting to dj more i was dating i was jamming with people on the drums and i was teaching so for me leaving the monastery was i felt like i completed a cycle of my training and my work, you know, so I spent 15 years there and I don't feel like I depend on that structure to practice. Like I once felt like I needed it. So in some sense it's been internalized and uh, the Dharma are just carrying the practice has become second nature. So it's been really fun mostly. The, the reality of making a living now is, is upon me. That's one thing, you know, we worked hard at the monastery. I mean, we worked basically as a teacher there. And I, when I was the assistant abbot, I was on from 4.30 in the morning till 10 at night with maybe an hour break in there. So it was a really rigorous life. So in a way, like lay life is easy. <laughs> especially covid lay life because i'm just working remotely and so i think the training i can't speak for other monasteries but the training in a zen monastery is excellent preparation for throwing oneself into a complicated life 100 percent. because first of all you move from stillness to activity from retreat to full-on engagement so often it's a rhythm that's daily and a rhythm that's monthly. So I think it is unique in its um, the way it really is an integrated practice. You're not cloistered and removed. You're not free of responsibility like some monastic forms. People really don't work and they just sit around and read scriptures all day. That's not that's not great vow training at least, and I think that's not Zen training. No, I mean, I've been in, through a few different places, always yeah. visiting a sort of on retreat, you know, but yeah, yeah, but it seems within the Zen container, the schedule, though, is this sort yeah. of thing that really holds things together. I yeah. heard um, 
I can't remember his name right now, but he would go to Upaya and he's like a Tibetan teacher. He's American, but a Tibetan teacher. And he talks about the schedule, especially on retreat, being so intense that it allows you to fall apart and still be held. Yeah. And I was just I'm yeah. curious as you sort of left into kind of lay life, like managing your own schedule and like if you've noticed any adjustment there. So I, that's I always kind of re- appreciate retreat where it's like, oh, your every choice is made and I can right. just go with it. But then when I have to think of the choice and then follow through with it, it sort of tweaks things yeah. for me. Yeah, so, yeah. So your listeners might not know what the schedule is like. I it's mean, fine. I'll, I, I do a little. I do a little thing if I like. If there's things I don't think people know, I add it in the beginning. Okay, great. So we okay. can just talk kind of freely. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, when I first came, I was busier than before. You know, because I had I'd have dance classes, and I would have a date, and I would have tea with a friend, and I'd have meetings with students. And then I'd be over at the temple across the street. So my life was was still really scheduled. But then COVID happened. And a couple months after that, I moved into Portland and it was just wide open time because Heart of Wisdom is closed. So finding structure for me, there was this fear of how am I going to get a livelihood together? And so I've had a lot of motivation to use my time fairly well for that reason, because I don't want to work at new seasons, you know, I want to be a spiritual teacher and somehow be supported. <laughs> so yeah, actually, it's not been hard to have all this all the space my um, I, I've had a lot of juice for getting my new life going, I could put it that way, I'm really inspired to design my life in a new way that that integrates all of who I am. So it hasn't been hard to use use time too well. Yeah. 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 Th- thank you so much for sharing that. I appreciate sure, sure. it. You know, I, um, yeah. I, let me see. There's got to be. I, I want to see if I can get more honest. Some challenges. You, you know. Well, I I, I kind of go to challenge. I'm like a psychotherapist. You know, I get yeah. like I get pulled there. So when you yeah. didn't go there, I'm like, oh, that's great. Like it doesn't need to always oh, be okay. hard, right? Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, you know, it was like at the monastery, I didn't sleep for more than six hours for so long, you know, like maybe once in a while I'd sleep eight hours, but there's such an intensity in that life that if I slept eight hours, I kind of felt like I wasted part of my day, you know, but now I sleep in and, and I have the evenings free. I'm not always meditating. And I would say my biggest challenge, like everybody is not spending too much time on Instagram or whatever the poison is. Yeah, yeah, whatever the thing that's grabbing attention yeah. to make a profit. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, th- this kind of thematically connects to one of the reasons I wanted to connect with you. Um, I'm doing this project. I don't quite know what it is. It's evolving as I engage with it, you know. Um, but I'm going on a surf retreat almost, like a surf trip, that I'm trying to bring a little bit of a kind of intensive practice period to, but shaping it around a surf trip. Uh-huh. So like the the surfing will dictate the practice periods, you know, like yeah, sitting, yeah. sitting before whatever it is, I kind of don't know yet exactly the flavor it'll take. Um, but in there, there's this sort of struggle I've had, you know, as someone that's wanting to kind of maintain a contemplative orientation kind of through a lay life. Like I made a choice when I was 20 to not go in the monastery when I was invited. And I was like, no, I want to do it outside of that. 
yeah. and it, it hasn't been easy for me you know um yeah. like it's been fun but it's it's like uh it's been a bit wild and chaotic um and in there like kind of in this trip for me there is this a like feeling of trying to bring together who I am on the surface, like the, the person that I am, you know, like I grew up surfing and like a stoner and just kind of that's like part of part of my, you know, and it took me a long time to even reclaim that. Like I, I had to let go of that, like, oh, I'm going to become spiritual now and, you know, wear hippie clothes and <laughs> be sober always and eat vegan raw, you know, like when I was in my 20s. And I, I'm wondering, like, as someone that's you know transitioning more into like a, a teach a lay teacher like living a lay life as a teacher and someone who i imagine has worked with people that have chosen not to step into a monastic setting but mm -hmm. still are sincere in their commitment mm -hmm. like what what you've seen that works for folks to kind of honor their sort of contemplative calling but um not have to like unnecessarily shed their identity you know what i mean where they can still hold those together i, I don't know if that makes sense as a question yeah, or a framing you know i yeah, can get more want, if it helps so sure sure well, i want to clarify what it means for it to work yeah that's and a, what it means to shed your identity yeah, you, yeah yeah um yeah and i don't mean in like an ego death sort of shedding identity i mean like uh you know like i'm like most i think of people entering a monastic setting and taking on a new name taking yeah. on robes, shaving their head. There's this sort of seems like a stripping away almost yeah. of maybe who they were before as yeah. part of the container. Uh -huh. But then for I think folks that stay in the lay life, they they don't have that mark. But sometimes people seem to take it on themselves of like changing their sort of social identity to fit their spiritual identity a bit. Yes. And you know, I've found that to be like frustrating for myself. Like I uh -huh. Like I almost had to let go of things I didn't want to let go of. No one made me, you know, but it was just this sense. And I've been like trying for a long time to like figure out more of a unified sort of stance of kind of being who I am as a person while still, you know, trying to hold whatever that contemplative spirit is. Yeah, yeah. So the the contemplative traditions have evolved all of this technology or all these all of these means to catalyze and amplify transformation and the deconstruction of identity and the opening of the heart. So the th things like giving up forms of personal expression, like your hair and your clothes, for example, it has other functions as well to remind you of, of your devotion and so forth. Like they, seeing it in the mirror. These, what's that? Oh, seeing it in the mirror, like seeing your devotion in the, in the mirror. mirror. That's right. Yeah. I mean, most, you know, a typical Zen monastery, for example, would not even have a mirror. <laughs> you, only, you only pull out a mirror when it's time to shave so that you're, you're interrupting the reference to self-image, which if you choose that is an amazing and powerful thing. So, so they have all these means that they accelerate transformation, but the core of it is still the meditation. The core of it is still what happens when we really fire up awareness and look into the nature of mind. So for a lay person, if they're doing that, that itself is going to initiate the falling away that is ripe to happen. 
doesn't need to be doesn't need to be contrived. It doesn't need to be artificial, and we don't have to like become Buddhists. Actually, you know, we don't have to like sign up for the spiritual club and all of a sudden decide we have to look the part. We may because we feel like that's a more genuine expression of our being to do those things. But what needs to fall away will fall away if the practice is done sincerely, if the essential practices are done sincerely. Can, can you stay with that thread a bit, uh, especially what yeah. you named earlier, that sort of dropping and when awareness is firing and yeah. it seems like you're alluding to something almost. And I'm wondering if you could put some words there. Yeah. Well, I think if it first begins, I can only speak of Buddhist meditation. Yeah, with, with Buddhist meditation, first thing we begin to see is that we're not our thoughts and that many of them are just encultured accretions that are relatively true, if that. And so our own um, belief system about the world, ourselves, and others, it all comes into question. And simply by seeing it and looking at it squarely, a lot of it begins to fall away. Or there's a paring down process of what is truly authentic and what is based on direct perception and what is just conceptual or reactive or cultural. So this, this thing of stripping off the layers of conditioning, if it's taken far enough, or if we're lucky, you know, we, we have some realization of, of awakening, of, of the space where there isn't identity. A space where there isn't identity, but want any identity can be flowed into as needed. Yeah, like it could input as needed for the context almost. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it, the way a life, so sometimes there's one, there's two camps around this. A conservative point of view from Buddhism is you can't just meditate and not take on the other disciplines because it all comes together. What, what would you kind of hold in those other disciplines? Outward forms of renunciation. Yeah. That, that really don't work in a lay life. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that really don't that really don't work. Though, though, there's there's a middle ground where people do find their version of implementing that. Yeah, I mean, I've always tweaked with austere austerity practices and yeah, taken yeah. them on for periods just to see, you know, where the yeah. clinging is. Yeah, yeah. But but traditional monasticism is an utter renunciation of autonomy to some degree and identity and all the ways in which we try to be a separate person from other people. It all gets cut into. So I think there's an organic way that what needs to fall away in a lay life falls away and what needs to transform transforms just from the touching into the essence of what we are and getting more authentic and freeing ourselves from just what not what is not true. And so the life the life shifts and 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 we start to make decisions or be faced with dilemmas that just organically arrange a life that works in accord with our devotion to the practice. Did that, did that, I don't know if that was too abstract yeah. or not. Um, I mean, I appreciated it. I'm an abstract human, so I, right. I, I made meaning out of it. If you want to put some flesh to it, you're welcome to. Yeah, I mean, 
one of the things that I've seen in students is people, lay people, they start practicing intensely and then they realize that the relationship's got to shift. Yeah. Because they need to be spending time with people who have similar value systems. Mm. Like that forming of community, maybe not in a monastic sense, but sort of. Yeah, that yeah. longing is there. I mean, that, that longing yeah. is there. And in a way, it's necessary to have companions in contemplative practice. Very few people can do it alone. And often when they do, they get a little bit skewed from my perspective. Yeah, what, what kind of skewing? I mean, maybe it's individual, the skewing, but what do you see sort of the drift that happens when someone is pretty yeah. private? Yeah, well, this is, you know, this is a, a kind of a, a caution about lay practice in general. It, it can become really self-referential. You know, my experience and my interpretation of the teachings and, you know, before I know it, I'm decided I'm enlightened and I'm, you know, find me on Facebook. Yeah, yeah, like there's not the same feedback loops that may be happening in a monastic setting where you're being shown sort of where yeah. self is firing strongly. I love that phrase, self-firing strongly, yeah. If you have that view about your partnerships or your close friendships or your family, it can serve that function Yeah. in a, in a very powerful way. And that's something I think is really important is new relationships like that. Take on sort of a a consensual commitment towards a transformational relationship where the, the relationship can sort of be the ground of the process in a way. Yes. It's, it's a lot of synergy when it works that way, but even if it's just you, you know, <laughs> that you, you view your relationships and the reactivities that come up oh, with your yeah. work. Yeah. Cause the essential difference between at least a Dharma practitioner and someone who's not a practitioner and making quotes mm -hmm. is that you take responsibility for your own mind. Yeah. Whereas people who in quotes don't have a practice externalize the locus of control over their reactivity so much more than people who do practice. It's like when we sit in meditation long enough, we understand how much responsibility we have for our mind, how much our mind weaves the feeling tone of our day and our perceptual experience and just how much shit we're making up, you know? <laughs> and, and that makes you smile a bit when you say it? <laughs> yeah, the humorous situation, the, the human, you know, the human condition of how much suffering we make for ourselves. Of course, there's suffering from systems and capitalism and having a human body and all that. Of course, there's that, but there's so much that just really comes from our own distorted and unskillful thinking, you know, our beliefs. So anyways, a, a community really helps one see that. And there, there are lay spiritual communities, of course. But the difference is, 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 is you have to choose to keep showing up in those mm, mm -hmm. as a lay person. You're faced with the choice to engage with the mirrors of your own mind. Yeah, like there's mirrors offering all around us always. It's just which ones we sort of choose to actually look into and see the reflection will we continue to choose because uh, it's the part of us that wants to look directly into our hearts is not the only part of us and that's i think the lay practitioner's deepest challenge is being outside of a monastic environment or some kind of retreat environment you have to keep a beat on your agency and your desire and your passion for the work. You have less help. 
or less peer pressure, which in some ways can make you a stronger practitioner. That's the flip side, because if you, if no one is making you get up and meditate, and if nobody is telling you to look at your own reactivity, but you still are keeping in touch with that desire and, and arranging your life so that, that you have a kind of crucible or a transformative environment, then that, that agency is wonderful because you're internalizing the, the aspiration for awakening mm. in a way which you can externalize it in other environments like a monastic environment. Well, yeah, thanks for the speaking to the good side of the lay life, you know. <laughs> And what drew you in? I mean, for someone that kind of took 15 years of a commitment, what, what kind of drew you in and kept you there? And what, what about retreat for you? I mean, did you have some experiences before retreat experiences? And like, that sounds like something caught you there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, after I did my first retreat, and especially after I did my first Zen Sashin, I just knew like, oh my God, this is potent. And after I went back to my life afterwards, I just felt like nothing else was as important. And especially in my 20s, I was just too distracted uh, person and much going on to make a life where I would do a lot of retreat. So I went into the environment for, first of all, there are other reasons, but primarily because I wanted to do the Zen session, the retreat every month, like that was like, okay. And ZCO seems to have a pretty heavy schedule, like a little, a little, a little stronger than some other communities I've seen, not I, the I strongest. Know, but... I don't know, but generally there's a session every month and there, there was a period of years where we did that plus other meditation retreats every month. So jeez. And that's what I wanted. I just wanted to be in that situation and go deeper and deeper with that. And that was my priority. So and what does retreat afford? You know, why, why was that like what, you know, after committing and kind of maybe seeing some of the fruition of spending time there, like what, what does retreat afford? Yeah. What, you know, what did it? Well, first of all, just there really is some kind of alchemy when you commit to an intensive amount of sitting meditation that can't be replicated otherwise i i use the i use the the uh metaphor of heat for awareness but actually literally awareness has an energetic heat and the more you're stoking that the stronger it gets and so that alone just sitting 8 12 more hours a day without the ability to say, nah, I don't want it. This, the giving up the choice around that and, and just being in that situation over and over, that's just really potent. And then if you have, um, you know, I had teachers that I really resonated with. There was a lot of synergy there. So that plus the amount of sitting is just so powerful. Do you, I, you know, I find it myself and I, I haven't seen this with everyone, you know, I've talked to people and I find a lot of retreats, not all of them sort of have like a, an arc to them almost like there's like a, 
an arc that's unfolding and it's soft it's not loud but like something it almost like something's being worked through and it seems a little different per retreat and i i don't know for you if that's something that resonates or yeah 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 there's almost it does resonate and i would say there's like two arcs for me that i've experienced one is my karmic work or the work on my conditioning my reactivity you know in buddhist terms my greed anger and my ignorance and how that shows up in my own mind stream that's a thread that you pick up over and over again when you go into retreat because you sit down just like right in the mess of yourself you know no escape you know you're just you're just we're always living in the environment of our own mind but that becomes more and more clear but that's the primary environment we dwell in is our own mind. So yeah, that work continues and there seems to be themes. And I, I saw in myself that in a way, the same stuff I'd work on and like a spiral would get deeper and deeper. But the other arc is the work on, on like essence work or the work on, on letting go of being somebody altogether and getting down to the, to the nakedness of awareness. And that has an arc too. Yeah, that's a that's a work that has a has a thread that when we learn to rest at that level of release when you go back into retreat there's some sense in which once you know that territory you can begin to relax into it easier and easier and continue where you left off so to speak yeah yeah i really appreciate what you're saying and kind of want to hang out with this a bit more around essence and relaxing and I know it enters a space where words can be hard to kind of capture, but p- part of this kind of uh, project I'm doing is um, my, my dad, uh, y- you know, we had a pretty rocky relationship. He, he left me when I was a kiddo, trying to work it out, you know, trying to find what it means to be, uh, you know, dad and son with that karmic history you know um but he was like an avid surfer but we never went out because like i think our times didn't overlap you know um but he was really into barrel riding which is like this you know when you kind of drop in and you're in the tube of the barrel and it's kind of over you and Uh and then you kind of find your way out and people that surf even kind of your you know alcoholic just drinking beer all day long kind of surfer will like (laughs) talk about that as being like touching God almost, or like the vortex or emptiness, or I've even seen documentaries where they try to like compare it to a spiritual state. Uh And I'm kind of curious for you, you know, for a surfer, right? They find that in the barrel, you know, there's this one period and it lasts about a second and a half, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're speaking to this way of accessing that sort of quality of experience and learning it and kind of how to maybe reside there. And I was wondering if you could kind of touch on that a bit of yeah. the practice of what it is to sort of relax into essence, to use the words you were using there and yeah. mm-hmm. you know what it's like maybe when you settle a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the first thing I, I just feel compelled to say is that there's, there are many different spiritual experiences. Totally, yes, yeah. Yeah, so you know, it's always, I'm more interested in what do you mean by God? Like, tell me what that is for you. And what do you mean by emptiness? What is that for you? And in a way that I, I'm curious and I want to invite all the facets of that jewel. Is it's, it's not all the same. And um, 
there's there's some important distinction to be made between states of being and what what while I call it essence I mean there's no essence but while I why I call it essence is that it's what's there when everything else is let go of it's not something that's created it's what is revealed when there's no attachment it's what re what's revealed when we like utterly let things be in their own space and we don't relate to them as me you know that's that's non-attachment in its in its fruition when we do deep meditation and you know the feeling tone of that is spacious the feeling tone of that is intimate and the feeling tone of that i mean in that in that there's no stress whatsoever when we fully let go. We, we do see that stress is not inherent in human being. That, that it, is, it is the product of how we relate to ourselves and our environment. So it's a profound release and, and, and the texture is pleasant and um, peaceful, but that's just the beginning, you know, because that, that when we let go of who we think we are to that degree and that space is opened up, there's room for everything, for taking every shape. So that essence is every emotion and that essence is the body and that essence is, is feeling stressed, you know. So it's not something, some peaceful bubble apart from the rest of life. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait. So sorry, Joan. No I forgot to silence my phone. That's all right. You can, good thing you can edit that out. So I'm kind of going off here because it's a very nuanced, nuanced thing. In 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 Zen teaching, the experience of liberation, you know, there are systems that delineate it. Like you can look at it these five ways or these ways. There's the four positions or the five ranks or because awakening or essence is not experienced in just one way which is what's so beautiful about it. You know, it's beautiful that you can experience it on a surfboard and that that experience can go deeper and deeper and be seen from different angles. I, I was drawn when you were talking about that sort of absence of stress or the, the seeing of maybe not even the need for stress. Um, I don't know if those were, but yeah. But then, you know, getting off the cushion or out of the retreat and stress arises and like how, how that impacts the way you relate to stress or meet stress or constriction or worry or anxiety or self-doubt, all those things that seem to kind of like to arise in the human experience. I'm wondering kind of how that kind of deeper essence experience uh, impacts how you meet kind of all these things when they do show up. Yeah, I think whether it's in like big, a big shift or a little shift, one thing that happens, or I'll say has happened for me is it takes more external challenge, like more has to be on my plate or more has to be coming at me, or conditions have to be more difficult for me to hit the stress point. So my threshold for just being okay with what is, is a lot bigger than it was before. And so I'm less easily knocked out of equilibrium. 
but you have a human body with a nervous system that that feels intimately and is impacted by people and things so there's you know there's a lot of hairs to be split in a way the question is you know how free can we can we navigate a modern life without any stress whatsoever can we just flow through it in a kind of awakened free state and i think my answer is um in theory yes because you see that stress is entirely a function of the mind uh, in opposition to circumstance in in its clinging mode but in reality the person who could really do that in a modern life probably doesn't exist they might be able to do it in a cave or in a monastery or in a protected environment up on the teaching seat but with a family and three kids and a job and like you know gunshots ringing out down the street i don't know so i think the idea is not to be free from stress but to be abiding in what stress arises in you know we we are again um at least for zen practitioners we're not aiming for a state of peace we're aiming for a mode of being where there's peace with whatever arises to embrace life in a way that we feel what what comes up with both intimacy we're willing to feel 100 percent in a way that's like the biggest challenge is we don't want to experience what we experience part of us says nope don't want to feel that pain nope don't want to feel that anxiety don't want to feel this discomfort and that's the stress yeah the, the turning away the turning away in the way that splits our being, the mm -hmm. way that puts us in a dualistic situation. Yeah. I sometimes call it divided experience. Come into divided experience, yeah. And then our own mind and body are divided, and then our own nervous system becomes dysregulated. So that is something we can correct and become free of. We can more and more be fully willing to experience what we experience without splitting off or dissociating. And in a way, like, I want to be careful in how I name this. Um, but there, there seems like such a heightened level of anxiety and stress right now, totally. kind of in our culture in the world, like it's always there. And it feels like it was already at the higher dial. And somehow they found a few more notches, yeah. whoever they are, you know, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it seems like there's sort of a lot of opportunity to meet stress right now. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you like, because maybe people's plates are fuller right now with everything that's happening. And if you could kind of speak to how to skillfully meet it when it does feel like too much or it feels like a lot. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, the first thing that comes up for me is to respect our coping strategies, mm -hmm. respect them as coming from a place of kindness in us and. At the, at the very least, coming from survival strategy, you know that from, from, from therapy. Yeah, just respect those and that, that sometimes that's the best thing we can do and that we should do it. So to never um, marginalize those or demonize those or make, make that a, a thing that we should be ashamed of. But, so practice is an invitation to live in a courageous way, to relate to experience courageously, but also the way that is most intelligent. Because every time that we do split off from experience or decide, no, I'm not going to feel this, 
or every time that we let ourselves check out because things are difficult, we deepen that groove. And the consequences of, of dissociating or, or checking out are not so good cumulatively. On the other hand, the consequences, if it's not a traumatic level of intensity, of feeling what we feel and staying inhabiting our bodies and our experience, that's only beneficial. And especially if we have some sense of the spaciousness of, of awareness from a meditation practice, we can hold that. We can, we can be with that grief, we can be with that fear, we can be with that anxiety, and being with it is always better than reacting to it. It seems though a lot of times, right, when there's a flare or, you know, constriction, whatever the right word is, or different words, you know, to capture different experiences. Yeah. There's a sort of, at least in myself, and I see in others, this almost sort of bracing, like, a, like you know, when you say it's always better, that's not the feeling initially. Like, right, when the intensity is there, there's such a loud voice or feeling to turn away or to do something to change it. Yeah. And it seems like there's a threshold a lot of times that you almost have to get through to kind of settle into the experience. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just, you know, how do, what, what helps folks kind of turn towards experience, you know, and yeah. you speak of courageousness and I'm like, what, what allows us to sort of tap the courageous heart or, yeah, you know, wherever you want to go with that. Yeah. You know? Well, first of all, I appreciate you, you saying, speaking about the threshold, because I think the way it works is we do recoil, but then if we have the mind of practice, we relax back into what we recoiled from. So that rhythm is, is there often, right? That, that's just the way it goes for most of the time. And that's not a, that's not a bad thing. Of course, you know, we, we see that we're doing that, that we're, we're grasping, we're clinging, we're shrinking. And then we open back into the experience if we have that intention. But what lets folks do that is I think we have to want to be somebody who doesn't avoid life. We have to be somebody who wants to be with the energies of existence in all their intensity. We have to see the consequences of living a life around avoiding discomfort. You got to see what that does to us. You know, and to phrase it positively, when we taste the freedom of fielding discomfort in a space of mindfulness and awareness, it becomes more and more compelling. Like, like that's, it's a, it's a ordinary miracle, you know, to do that. I, I remember when I first would come out of retreat and into the city, there was this profound feeling of, just a profound feeling of freedom of being in situ let's say I'm driving, you know, and when I was younger driving, I would just get so tense and be so much stress and I would get angry at people and I would feel unsafe and all that stuff. And coming out of that from the retreat space or from a morning sitting and feeling how I could be in that very same environment and not be triggered like that is so juicy, it's so compelling. It's, it's, um, so for me, tasting that potential inspires me to more and more want to, to live that way and to keep returning to this different way of relating to experience. You know, the problem is not this experience most of the time. 
The problem is the part of me that's unwilling to be present with it. Yeah. And like one thing I'm seeing just in the world and folks I work with and friends is with COVID and with, you know, a lot that's happening is maybe they've had some ability to, to relax around the constriction, but right now it's like, wait, is this one I can relax around or do I need to hold on to this one? Maybe this one's real, you know, whatever the version of the constriction is, you know, that there seems to be uh, an enticement to stay with it a little longer. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't know if this is something. Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, I want to make a distinction between feeling passionate and charged around an issue is not something I'm saying to let go of. Oh yeah. No, I'm talking yeah. about more anxiety and yeah, worry more anxiety. and fear. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's our, that's our belief system, right? That's our defense mechanism. Let I get anxious and I get some adrenaline and then I can flee the situation or, or defend myself. So that's like deep reptilian brain kind of stuff. And, um, one of the benefits of practicing over a long time is you just you just think about these things a lot and you think about the consequence of actions and you internalize a different view. So part of what helps me in the moment is not necessarily my instincts around the experience, but it's a view that I've cultivated. From listening to teachers over the years and from reading the teachings and from my own experience altogether. I've just internalized like, oh, it's actually more skillful and more loving and more beneficial to not get caught up in this. Not to pretend I'm not feeling it. Not to spiritually bypass. No, no, no. It's not what I'm saying, but to inhabit this anxiety, this stress with presence. That <sighs> seems like such a delicate, a delicate line there to, to be it and to not verify it or sort of validate it. It is. I agree. It, 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 we have to learn the difference between being willing to feel and experience something with space and taking it as ultimately real and worthy of avoiding. It's, it's a, it is a delicate line. Yeah. Well, th thanks for describing it a bit. Sure. sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, of course, in no way do I want to diminish what people are, uh, are feeling. Yeah. Yeah. But just, I guess what I want to say is that we metabolize the difficulties of our lives when we practice them. Mm -hmm. We use the stuff of our anxiety and our fear and our concern to wake up and become deeper and more rich and loving humans when we inhabit it with presence mm. rather than deepening the reactive habits in us. Yeah, that seems so I really appreciate that like this. Like the the stuff of our life is what's allowing the transformation. And I think so much so much we kind of want the stuff to go away. No, no, no difficulties, no liberation, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, for a long time, I experienced full blown panic attacks, like palms dripping, sweat, heart pounding Ooh. when I would meditate. Yeah, I'm sorry, man. That's, that's a whole other level, right? Like, it's, well, it's, you know, and I think I would hit a, like a layer of, of some kind of trauma. Maybe, maybe it was ancestral trauma. Maybe it was childhood in my meditation practice. And I was able to have the support to sit through that, to know what it's like to hold space for terror even. 
And so I don't wish that on people, but I sometimes tell my students, they say, oh, anxiety is coming up in their practice when they sit. And I'm like, great. <laughs> I wish you fully manageable panic attacks in the space of your sitting meditation. Yeah. And I wish that you take that into the next difficult interaction you have with somebody. And, I, and the next time you get sick, because... Spiritual practice is not about feeling good. It's about holding our life in a deep perspective, in a deep context. And it won't happen. We'll become hothouse flowers if our practice and our challenges don't come together. And anyways, it'll happen anyway. Yeah, the challenge will always meet you, right? The challenge will always be there, but we don't all meet challenges the same way. One of the things that's really... Um, curious to me is why somebody some people become you know profoundly um, rich and durable and heartfelt people from going through difficulties and other people just shrink and collapse like the mysteries of life and of course there's a lot in between those two but why does that happen yeah what sort of allows for the resiliency of the heart to emerge through difficulty and what kind of yeah. yeah people come out this come out the other side of uh, difficult times in their life and they're just they're deepened and they're more open and some people come out and they're more traumatized and what is that mystery yeah you got any speculation i don't i don't but i do feel that if we have a practice if we have a contemplative practice we're more likely to fall on the side of becoming matured and ripened and more compassionate from our difficulties than resentful. I think it. I think it increases the possibility that that will happen. Guaranteed. You know, earlier you mentioned the heart, sort of in the dropping into the heart, or I don't remember your exact words, but I was wondering if we could just hang out with the heart for a little bit. Sounds great. Yeah. And yeah. You know what the. I don't, I don't have a good question there. Just a desire to be with the heart, you know? Yeah. So uh, if you could speak to heart or, you know? Yeah. Yeah, when I drop into the heart like that, I don't really want to speak. Yeah. But, um, yeah. You know, I feel more and more that the heart is its own mode of intelligence. Yeah. It's its yeah. own living, energetic organism it's it, you know and this is not new the eye of the heart you know mm -hmm. that phrase has been around for so long so we know this um, yeah i've been reconnecting to some christian roots in the last year or so and the sort of dropping the mind into the heart and there's so much focus on the heart in that tradition yeah i, f I feel sometimes in zen and i know this is simplifying but like the hara or the gut is like there's so much in the gut yeah and you know yeah this, these sort of zones that we maybe have where we can live from yeah and like uh for you maybe the journey for you to kind of your heart and you know what what it's been like to learn to attempt to reside there come from there i, I heard you once say that you wrote something above your door right like i don't remember the phrase but it was like uh, was it loving or were you coming from love? Or? Oh, yeah. Um, something about choosing love. Yeah. 
Well, I think it's easy to be loving when people are nice to you and you find them, you find them attractive and everything's going well. It's not so easy to abide there when things aren't going well and uh, people aren't attractive to you and so forth. It's not easy when you're outside of it, but when you're when we're in the heart, when I'm in the heart, that's that's where I want to be and that's how I want to experience the world and I think being in the heart doesn't mean that you just experience positive things. Yeah. I think that's a, you know, one-sided version of understanding of love and opening to a bigger love is that this means you're going to feel more loving feelings, but no, it means you're going to feel a lot more things. You're going to feel more grief and more sadness. And um, hopefully you have space to hold that heart in. That's why, in, you know, in Buddhism, we emphasize wisdom and compassion. Mm -hmm. One without the other is a lopsided practice. You described when you spoke of it, they're almost like a place, like when you're in the heart. For and me, I'm wondering yeah. how you, how you, like when I'm in a place, I can kind of, oh, I'm here. Like yeah. what are the, the sort of signs or the signifiers to let you know, like, oh, I'm in the heart versus maybe in the head or somewhere else? It's very much somatically inhabited. I am my, just like, you know, you talked about the belly and Zen inhabiting the Tanden, right? That, that area of the body. For me, it's, it's, a, it's presence is filling out the, the chest, the heart center. Yeah, I, I know at a time in my practice when I was going through emotional difficulty, I noticed I would disinhabit the heart. The mind would be clear, I would be present, there would be spaciousness, but I had, it's like awareness had uh, slipped away from the heart center. And I would notice I needed to re-inhabit the heart. And what that meant is feeling things I didn't want to feel and being with a broken heart, essentially. So that's what it means to inhabit the heart. It means that you have to inhabit a broken heart. Because if it's not broken, it's not the heart. You know, you just, you, you, this world, you can't, you can't be heart-centered and, and it not have a crack in it. Not hurt a bit. Not hurt a bit or hurt a lot at times. So it, it's... Um, it's very physical for me, and I and I have taken up practices of working with the energy of the heart, literally, you know. Or, or it is it is subtle body, but but it's somatic. Mm -hmm. Subtle, subtle somatic. Subtle somatic, yeah, I like that phrase, and I encourage my students to do that. And what what are the practices for you that you've kind of drawn on for working with the heart? Yeah, I've done different energy yogas. But I would say the essential thing is the essential things that they all come down to is breathing into the heart and re-inhabiting, you know, re-inhabiting. I think it, it, it is not such a strong habit for me these days to be up in my head. And I think that's the number one thing that gets us out of the heart is just being so rationally centered. If the, if the head is rational... Kind of what's the heart's mode? I guess it's the heart's mode. I, um, I don't want to reduce it to just feeling. Yeah, yeah. It's not just merely emotional. I don't know what it is. I don't know what, what words I would put to that. I don't know what words I would put to that. 
I, I think there's a, um, a regard for life. One is seeing from a regard from life when we're stationed in the heart. Mm. That seems so essential right now. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. There's like a deep respect for the dignity and the beauty of, of being that um, can be rationalized, but it's not felt there. You know, the, the word that comes up as you talk is uh, participatory. Yeah. There's yeah. some participatory quality that you're together with whatever, all things or certain things or, yeah. Yeah. You know, in Dzogchen, the um, heart is the scent is the, is the mostly symbolic, but somewhat an energetic truth is, is the, the abiding place of the heart. Hmm. So the, the awakened mind is not some cool detached wisdom. But it had, it's pervaded with the quality of heart, whatever that is. That that um, communion of being, participatory. Yeah. Well, yeah. I wanted to maybe go down a little bit of a Dzogchen rabbit, but sure. I don't think we have enough time for that. I have a little bit more time if you want to. Yeah, like, um, when did Dzogchen come in the mix for you? It seems like you've been with it for a while. I, I know I took a, like a day long where you brought some Dzogchen into a Zen context and yeah. mixed it, I think, with some other things too. A yeah. little cocktail that you made. It's yeah. Like... <laughs> um, in my early 20s, uh, those were the, some of the first Dharma books I found. Dzogchen books, so I thought that was what Buddhism was, you know. <laughs> so in a way, I feel really lucky that... Uh, no, you know, I, I read some of the more orthodox Buddhist things and I was too, I was, you know, 17 or 18 and I was like, I'm, I'm, this, this is, this just feels like it's criticizing me, you know, like I'm, I'm this kind of sinful, foolish being, but Dzogchen had an openness to it that I loved. And especially even before I went into the monastery, I was reading a book called Flight of the Garuda, which is a, a classic, classic text in the Nima tradition of, of Dzogchen and to Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And um, I was reading that, you know, as I was transitioning into this Zen monastery. And so it profoundly influenced my view of what practice was. It wasn't until a number of years later that I actually received Dzogchen instruction from people like uh, Alan Wallace and Tenzin Wangyo. And then I met Keith Dowman in 2008 or 2009, I believe, somewhere around then. And he was coming to Portland and um, I was invited to a seminar with him and I was just, I clicked with him right away. There was just some real affinity. And essentially it helped me understand Zen more, you know, and some of the things that were in the teachings of Zen that I never quite got. There's more technology in Dzogchen because it, it has a tantric, it came up, it, it arose in a tantric context. So there's more working with visualization and, and prana and things like that. Yeah. It seems the better. subtle body is held a bit more with What's it. that. The subtle body is held a bit more with there's more it. attention to the subtle body and there's some creative, skillful means that, that work with you know, freeing us from some of our fixed beliefs and, and dualisms. So yeah, I, I, I love the Dzogchen tradition. I, I've sometimes told people it's like Zen, but more fun. 
<laughs> which is which is you know it's not it's not quite true but there's something about there's a more expressiveness that's invited in the Dzogchen tradition there's a practice called Ruzhen which has been really impactful for me where you give expression to all the different realms of suffering you know, in Buddhism there's the six realms which are these different modes of being and you give full expression to them with your body mind and speech is this a movement practice or is this a on the cushion practice. it's done in different ways you, there's ways that you do it with visualization and there's ways that you do it full-on like almost theatrically and that really those practices really changed my life and led to some other practices that were similar so so there's a sort of fully inhabiting or embodying but then expressing like giving life to these sort of these realms the idea is that within the context of spaciousness, from abiding in spaciousness, you then move full on into extremes of being, whether positive or negative, whether hellish or heavenly. You move into extremes of being, but they're infused with that spaciousness. So you know them as empty, you know them as energy, you know them as a play of light. and what's different than a normal catharsis is that is that you're you're not just being full-on 100 percent emotional and playing out these extremes but it's infused with essence with, with experience of emptiness and so keith Dalman would say you dance the six realms you dance the spaciousness of the hell realms or the spaciousness of the hungry ghosts or the spaciousness of animals and so forth and as I'm saying this, I realize it connects back to why I have this um, value of fully inhabiting experience rather than retreat, retracting from it, because that's what that's what this practice is of Rujan is, is training to do that. And it seems kind of in this and other things we've touched on this ability to tap into or connect to essence seems to really support one's capacity to be with experience, maybe some of the more difficult experiences. Absolutely. What, what would you say to someone that kind of doesn't, doesn't experientially know that, that doesn't have a taste? Like what, what, what supports? That depends on who it was, whatever. Yeah, that's say. true. I mean, if you could yeah. be a bit broad, assuming yeah. there's a, a wideness of potential listening. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a reason that people do intensive practice. This, uh, real shifts in being don't come with just good ideas in general. There's got to be some work around it. There's got to be some ritual or some, some, some contemplative technology, something that invites us in, into essentially what is just a different relationship with experience. Sometimes people think of um, Zen or Buddhism or other contemplative traditions of making a new state of mind or discovering something partially true. But from where I'm at, it's, it's moving into a different relationship with the very same stuff. A relationship that has, is not in opposition, a relationship of intimacy with all the same textures of life, but your, your orientation is different. And, that, and that's everything. Well, thank you so much, Jogan, for hanging out for an hour. Oh, I do yeah. appreciate it. Appreciate yeah. you.
excited to see what you do in the coming years with maybe a little more freedom on your hands to yeah. kind of choose your schedule. Can I, can I plug my, my, uh, Oh, plug all the things you want to plug. You can yeah, plug can, all you want. Yeah. So, you know, I'm a Zen teacher and I, I, I lead retreats and I'm a teacher within Zen community of Oregon, but I also do one-on-one -on -one facilitation work with, uh, I bring parts work, uh, voice dialogue and, um, process work together with awareness work and I do one-on-one -on -one facilitations. And a lot of what I talked about today, I help people do fully inhabiting the spectrum of themselves with presence and opening up to what they've excluded and who they are. Yeah. That's sort of reclaiming aspects of experience that maybe have been yeah. broken off for a while. Totally shadow work, all of that. Yeah. So, um, you can, if you're interested in doing that kind of work with me, my website is uh, solisluna.org, S-O-L-I-S-L-U-N-A. Yeah, and w whenever I put this up, I'll link that kind Very of on cool. it. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I haven't yet decided how the form of this will go, but oh, okay. you know, I imagine it'll be on YouTube and on a podcast thing. Cool. So Cool. Yeah. Yeah, so people are yeah. interested, they can reach out. Yeah, good, good luck. I hope, you know, I hope uh, the Dharma brings uh, financial support so you can continue living you know we'll see. the two can work together yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, good yeah thank you project yeah yeah thank you we'll see you know we'll see if it turns into anything i take on things and sometimes they don't become something so <laughs> i hope you follow it through it sounds really cool yeah thank you jogan i appreciate you man thank you so much you're welcome all right okay bye okay bye-bye thanks for listening hope you enjoyed that conversation with jogan and if you're interested in connecting with Jogan or working with him, I'd really encourage you to check out solisluna.org. It's S-O-L-I-S-L-U-N-A.org. It's in the show notes also. Um, Jogan is just, you know, committed practitioner and has many years of experience. And if you're wanting help kind of being guided through your own transformational journey, like not many people better than Jogan my view um, yeah i hope you enjoyed this i hope you have a good week a good day and find some nourishment and some connection to the earth and community and can feel some love for yourself and the world uh, thank you for being here thank you for listening thank you for living